From the Ramon Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez. California lifts the stay-at-home order. L.A. County drifts back into the purple tier. But a lot of businesses are now back in business. We'll ask Supervisor Janice Hahn if it's too much too soon. Plus, President Biden lifts the curtain on his plan for the environment and dealing with climate change. Does it all meet California's strict standards? It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for being with us today. Coming up. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. Uh, we see it with our own eyes. We feel it. We know it in our bones. President Biden signed executive orders today to combat climate change. We'll talk to the state's environmental leaders about what this means for California. That's just ahead. But let's start right here in Los Angeles. On Monday, California Governor Gavin Newsom lifted the state's stay-at-home order, leaving it up to counties to manage restrictions designed to stop the spread of COVID-19. Los Angeles County quickly followed suit, lifting restrictions on things such as private gatherings that same day. But there's still a lot of debate over whether this is an appropriate move, especially since coronavirus cases are still in the thousands each day. Coupled with a slowly ramping up and at times confusing vaccination process, many people are concerned that the situation may get worse yet again. Here to explain what the county is doing to adapt to these changes and to make vaccination distribution more efficient is L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn. Supervisor, welcome. Thank you, A. Good to be with you. Now, as of Monday, in addition to private gatherings, outdoor recreation at places such as card rooms and gyms reopened, outdoor dining coming soon. After hearing Governor Newsom's intention to lift restrictions, what did the county take into consideration as it figured out how to proceed? Well, once the governor lifted the stay-at-home order, it put Los Angeles County back into our purple purple tier, which is still the most restrictive tier. Um, So there's still a lot of things that we haven't opened completely. But it does allow us uh, to reopen outdoor uh, dining and um, hair salons and nail salons at 25% capacity. So we did take into consideration um, if this was something that was smart based on our cases, our hospitalizations, our ICU beds. But, you know, I think there's a lot of restaurants that probably feel like it couldn't come soon enough to allow them to reopen again. We've been threading this needle between uh, preserving the public's health and preserving people's livelihoods and jobs. It's been a very tough uh, place to be in. But I think uh, the public really is suffering from COVID fatigue, and I think they welcome the opportunity in a limited way to begin uh, enjoying yeah. some of the activities that they've missed. Well, COVID fatigue is one, you know, a lot of people are suffering from it, but I think, still think that it has to be tempered with the reality of our situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of controversy over letting outdoor dining happen because some feel the coronavirus is still too big of a threat. So can you explain the county's position on this right now? Well, 
I specifically asked that question yesterday at our Board of Supervisors meeting. If our uh, Dr. Galley, who's in charge of our hospitals, I said, are you comfortable uh, with us moving forward, considering um, where we're at, uh, reopening outdoor dining? Because we do know that when people um, engage in outdoor dining, they are removing their masks briefly and they are eating. Um, And she assured us that our cases were going down, our hospitalizations were going down, and you know, we're vaccinating thousands of people every day. So with with people being vaccinated, hospitalizations and cases going down, um, she felt like there was a pathway forward for us to engage in what some experts are calling harm reduction. We know people want to do certain things. We're going to tell them how to do it safely. So we're basing it on projections or at least how things appear to be heading as opposed to getting to a finish line and then reopening. We are, because I think there was just a consensus that, uh, you know, many of our businesses, particularly our restaurants, um, have really borne the brunt of these health orders. Uh, many of them didn't, will not recover. Many of them have had to close permanently. And many people's jobs uh, relied on uh, these restaurants. So uh, I think we're sending them a little bit of a lifeline right now. Um, and again, it's going to be limited capacity. We're probably going to tell them to close at 10 p.m., take reservations. You know, maybe we're going to say people can only sit at the tables, I don't know, 90 minutes. I think whatever we ask them to do, they will do. And by the way, they spent a lot of their own money in uh, building outdoor dining rooms, right? They put in the infrastructure, the gazebos, the plants, the fencing. Uh, they, they put a lot, the heaters. They've done a lot to accommodate the county's request last year. Um, so I, I do think um, we can look at that. And you know what? And we've been known before to close them down if things go in the wrong direction. But I think we're ready to slowly um, reopen our economy. So on what you said, uh, Supervisor, on on what you're going to ask restaurants to do, Mm -hmm. is it going to be just an ask or are you going to put more teeth into it, make it almost a mandate uh, to have certain guidelines in place, certain things in place that can make it as safe as possible, considering, as you said, that uh, in order for this to work, people do have to take their masks off to eat. Yes, and that's what we're waiting to have come out any day now. Um, uh, Our health officer order will include uh, guidelines that they must adhere to, um, and as you said, safety protocols uh, in order to open. And that will be the things that our health inspectors will keep an eye on. Um, And if they don't comply, we have no problem, uh, you know, finding them or citing them or, you know, removing their their permit to to open. So uh, we will have strict guidelines for them to reopen. And, you know, we're asking the public, let's not go crazy this weekend. <laughs> you know, Well, that's, you, I mean, I don't know how you could ask people to do that, Supervisor. I mean, you've seen what people do when, when they get an opportunity. I know, which is what we, which is what was behind closing the restaurants. You know, I, uh, we never did get um, actual scientific data that connected outdoor dining to the surge in cases. And and in fact, our restaurants have been closed since Thanksgiving, and yet our cases uh, really surged. So there's no direct evidence um, that that there's a, a, you know, connection. But a lot of what went behind that uh, was trying to keep, uh, you know, people from having opportunities to go do things. So, you know, we were kind of trying to, 
legislate behavior. It's hard to do. I would rather have a harm reduction strategy where we know you want to do it. We know you need to do it. We're going to tell you how to do it the safest way you can. But in terms of enforcing this somehow, you mentioned how you know it's, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I live in Burbank, supervisor, and there's a place uh, a few blocks away from me, just a couple blocks away from me, that uh, is open all the time uh, with people sitting down. Uh, I mean, this is when we weren't allowed to, to, to sit down and eat without, you know, indoors. And, and, and it got a little frustrating to see that nothing was happening to them. Um, and I might be at a supermarket with the people that were there. And, and I, you know, I, you understand what I'm saying? It's like it I, feels I like totally nothing's happening you. to the people that flout the rules. I totally hear you, although we just um, gave our lawyers in L.A. County uh, permission to begin uh, raising the fines on people who do not comply uh, to our health orders. So we do have teeth, but it does take a uh, complaint uh, for us to follow up on. We don't have enough health inspectors to just troll the streets uh, every night. Uh, but if we get complaints, we absolutely have to follow up on them, and they could lose their, their permit to ever reopen. So, uh, you know, we should go after the bad guys, but I do think there's an opportunity now to allow some of these businesses to maybe start to eke out uh, some recovery on their own, bring some people back uh, who really depend on these jobs. And, and may I say, if we had had enough money from the federal government to pay people to stay home, pay restaurants to keep closed, um, then this would be a very different situation. I wouldn't have to make these decisions. But we never had enough money to allow people to stay home, those who don't have the luxury of working from home. So there was so much inequity in terms of people having the income to pay their rent, to put food on the table, to eke out an existence when government shut down their livelihood, um, that we have to, I believe, walk a, a, a thin line going forward in allowing some people to recover their own economy, um, their okay. own existence, while we still work on protecting people's health. And the more vaccines we can get, the more people we can vaccinate, we're heading in the right direction. So on that, on the vaccines, uh, Supervisor, County is uh, changing its distribution priority list to an age-based priority system once healthcare workers and some essential workers are vaccinated. Can you explain how that's going to work? Yeah, so this is, again, this was the governor's um, idea that uh, once we got through uh, the healthcare workers, and then, as you know, we've included 65 and older in that group, once we get through them, um, and then the, the teachers and maybe the grocery store workers and first responders, after that, the governor wants to just throw out sort of the job descriptions and begin uh, vaccinating people by age group. So then it just becomes everybody 60 and older, everybody 55 and older, no matter what your job is. And the thinking is that that will really will limit the, the some of the confusion and maybe the bottleneck, you know, then you don't have to prove where you work. You prove, you don't have to prove you're essential. Um, you begin just doing it by age. And I think that's a smarter way to do it. And we'll certainly figure out how to do that. Again, we're going to open up more, you know, more sites. We're going to uh, plead for more vaccines from the federal government. And I think that might be a smoother rollout. Currently, it feels like we're pitting essential jobs against essential jobs. Is a dock worker, you know, more important than a teacher who's more important than a grocery worker who's more important than the truck driver that brings the groceries? You know, it's gotten into kind of an interesting who's most essential. I like the age category better, um, and I think it'll get us 
through um, the number of people we need to vaccinate vaccinate quicker. That's uh, Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn. Supervisor, thank you very much. Thanks. All right, now let's reverse the clock. On January 27, 2017, former President Donald Trump issued what came to be known as the Muslim ban. Immediately, the news drew thousands of people out to airports protesting it across the country. And that first attempt to curb immigration from majority Muslim countries would be struck down. But ultimately, a similar travel ban did stick until now. Talia Inlander is supervising senior staff attorney for the pro bono law firm Public Counsel, and she joins us to remember. Uh, Talia, how did you first hear about the ban four years ago? Sure. So the ban came out on uh, on a Friday evening, and I actually am uh, Shabbat observant, so my phone is usually off Friday nights uh, through Saturday uh, through Saturday evening. So I learned about the ban through uh, through. I wake up from my wife early Saturday morning saying, you know, I know your phone is off, but I think you should turn it on. Mm. Uh, there's there's some news from the Trump administration. Uh, and so I learned of it early, early Saturday morning and uh, immediately got in my car to my office and uh, and, and to the airport within in the course of, of an hour or so um, to see what help I could be. So set the scene for us at LAX back then. What was it like? So I was uh, among the first attorneys on the ground. Uh, and as the day wore on, hundreds of, and eventually thousands of people would be on the ground. But early that morning, uh, there were just a few of us and many, many frantic family members uh, trying to understand what, were ha- what was happening to their loved ones uh, who were either stuck on planes or stuck on the other sides of customs, uh, not knowing uh, what was going to happen, if they were going to be allowed into the country, if they were going to be turned away. It was quite chaotic. Uh, I think a lot of the the officers and 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 the folks working at the airlines also were quite confused that morning about what to do and what was going to happen. Uh, so it was it was a chaotic scene. Well, how would you say the that chaos and that confusion? Do you think that was intentional in some way? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the goal of of this ban was to keep as many people out as quickly as possible and uh, to create confusion. Absolutely. And it had that intended uh, effect. Now, you set up a a legal aid table at the Bradley International Terminal at LAX, I think. Now, tell us tell us uh, how you did that and what kind of help are you offering right there in that moment? Sure. So the first day we we didn't even have the benefit of a table. We were on mm. the floor oh, wow. um, in in the Bradley Terminal, uh, setting up sort of a, you know just just on the floor there uh, with family members, uh, and we had to act really quickly because again people were stuck on the other side of customs. Some people were were being threatened and and in fact were put on planes that same morning uh, to be returned to their home countries despite having permission to lawfully enter the United States. And so we needed to act immediately. Uh, So we were, uh, you know, on the floor, eventually, as days went on, we were at the tables, uh, coordinating with our colleagues who were behind their desks at legal aid nonprofits and law firms across the city to file lawsuits to, uh, you know, to stop the planes from taping off. And eventually, uh, when that didn't work, uh, requiring the government to, to bring folks back. Now, even though that first ban was struck down, what sort of message did it send the world? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it sent a clear message that this was going to be an administration and an America that was not going to be welcoming um, to outsiders. And that, of course, proved to be very true. You know, one really concrete memory I have from that first day is uh, bringing a habeas petition, a court petition that had been filed to stop uh, the return of a, of a 
of an of a man who was coming to unite with his family from Iran. Uh, and I said, you know, we just we filed this court petition, you know, stop that plane. Uh, and he looked at me and he said, this is America. And I thought, well, this is not the America that I recognize, you know, and I think that basic question of, you know, what America, you know, what is our understanding of America that that has been, you know, the fundamental question these past four, four years. And that question is still being, you know, fought over today, sort of whose America is it? Um, what kind of vision do we have for this country? And I, I think those questions, you know, even even with the ban um, being repealed by the Biden administration, um, I think that question is still very much at play at play today. And now that uh, President Biden is undoing it, uh, we were wondering what's next for families affected by the bans. We called up a listener, Amina Madavi, is a, is a cybersecurity engineer in California. She has not been able to bring her mother from Iran to the U.S. because of the ban. Here's what she told us today. I'm very hopeful to see her again. I was ready for another four years of not being able to have my parents here. But this won't take back time. The time lost with my families, the time that my kid lost seeing his grandparents and the the time that they lost. Talia, what's next for families such as Amina's? You know, I hope that uh, that they don't lose another day, another week. You know, uh, th- those visas th- uh, still have to be processed at the consulate. So, you know, we need to make sure that um, the folks at the consulates are doing their job to process those applications, to reach back to the ones that were wrongly rejected and, and expedite those so that people can return as, as quickly and as safely uh, to their loved ones as, as possible. Talia Inlander is an immigration rights attorney with a pro bono law firm, Public Counsel. Talia, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so not every Hollywood studio is putting all their stuff on streaming services. Some are actually holding off, waiting for the day that you want to head back into a movie theater. We'll tell you which ones when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC at kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. First ever online Sundance Film Festival starts this week. Uh, for more on this and more Hollywood news, we're going to go on the lot. God is my Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joining me, as always, is Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, let's start with some uh, sad news. Uh, just minutes before we connected, we heard that uh, actress Cloris Leachman has died. She was 94 years old. What uh, will she be most remembered for? Well, I think the answer to that question depends a lot on how old you are. Um, many people know Cloris Leachman 
best for her role in the Mary Tyler Moore show, or perhaps if you're a different generation, Malcolm in the Middle. She won nine Emmys for her TV work. Or if you're me, you know her best for uh, playing Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein, the the Mel Brooks movie, in which she was a fearsome and hilarious uh, character. Uh, but really, I mean, Cloris Leachman is has really an extraordinary career. You know, she was a former Miss America contestant who happened to also be a really gifted comedic actress. Um, well, well rewarded for that in her TV career and her work with Mel Brooks. They also made High Anxiety together and a gifted dramatic actress. She was nominated for an Oscar for her role in Peter Bogdanovich's Last Picture Show. You mentioned Mel Brooks. If Mel Brooks selects you to be in one of his films, you probably have comedy chops. History of the World Part One. Uh, that, that is one of the one of the best movies I've ever seen. One of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I know that on Twitter you were complaining about no one making comedy right now that you I can know. process. I could use a good comedy right now, yeah. and yeah. for sure I'm turning to the old ones like that. I mean, interestingly, when Mel cast her uh, in. Young Frankenstein, he gave her a dramatic role to use for reference for that part. He told her to think of the uh, film Rebecca, the Hitchcock film Rebecca, <laughs> and the uh, Danvers character, Mrs. Danvers, who was sort of terrifying. And yeah. so she took that Hitch, that scary Hitchcock character and put a comedic twist on it. It's all about the process, Rebecca. It's all about mm-hmm. the process. All right, other news. Uh, this time of year, you and uh, much of the film press and the industry are out in Park City, Utah, at the Sundance Film Festival, but not this year. Uh, it's not uh, postponed or anything, so how's it working this year? Right. Well, there will be a virtual Sundance Film Festival this year, which means that we will all be watching on our smart TVs and our laptops instead of cramming into theaters, uh, standing in lines in the cold to see the films. There had been a plan to do some um, outdoor uh, drive-in screenings, which Sundance ended up canceling, at least their LA ones, because of the rising COVID numbers here. So this will be purely virtual in most respects. And the good thing about virtual though is more people, right, can go and take part of this, right? Before you had to, you know, you had to take a flight to Utah and it was a lot there was a lot more to it, but now it seems like a wider range of audiences available. Yeah, it's true. I mean, normally going to Sundance is expensive and difficult and this format really enables a much broader audience to access the films. There are fewer films this year than there typically are. Last year, I think there were 118 movies. This year, there are just 72. And I think it will be a kind of smaller and more muted marketplace reflecting where the film industry is right now. Nonetheless, there's good stuff. Um, Yeah, what are are some of the movies that uh, you're looking at uh, seeing? Well, there are a couple of movies that are going that already have distributors and so will be sort of easy for people to see even if they're not attending the festival. One is Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a Warner Brothers drama starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. It's about the Black Panther Party. It's getting a very robust awards push. Uh, another is a movie called Land. This is Robin Wright direct, Robin Wright's directorial debut. Um, Focus Features is releasing it. Uh, she plays a woman who's sort of retreated to the wilderness to deal with uh, a trauma. And then there's some other movies that we'll be looking for distributors. One is a movie called Passing, um, about uh, passing as white, uh, starring uh, Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson. Um, That has a lot of uh, positive buzz, and we'll be looking for a distributor. Another movie called Coda, uh, which people are pretty excited about. This is about a young woman who is the um, daughter uh, in a family where everyone else is deaf but her. 
Um, and that's not even, there are some really promising and interesting documentaries too, including one directed by Questlove called Summer of Soul. This is about a 1969 concert series in Harlem um, that is sort of colloquially known as the Black Woodstock. That is a very hot title. Lots of folks circling it, looking to buy. And a doc about Rita Moreno. And, um, you know, since uh, I don't get invited to fancy film festivals, as you do, Rebecca, I have to wait until films get to the theater. Um, considering how the vaccine rollout has uh, been uh, not as smooth as uh, most people had hoped, what are the chances that in 2021 I'll be able to sit down in the front row surrounded by sound and screen? Well, studios and theater companies are really, really hoping that's true. They they have just pushed back a number of the spring releases to the fall, including the James Bond film, No Time to Die, Quiet Place 2, um, the Ghostbusters movie. These are, we're all supposed to come out sort of spring, summer, and they're now going into the fall. But the feeling is that movie going really will start coming back in earnest when people are vaccinated, that that will make people feel comfortable enough to go to theaters. And because of that, studios will be ready to start releasing some of their big films. Um, some that are still on the calendar for summer, uh, Paramount's Top Gun Maverick is is due July 2nd. Disney's Black Widow is due in May. Um, so far, they haven't moved either of those films to a streaming service or to later in the year. So, Rebecca, here's the only way I'm going to be comfortable going to a theater. Double mask, baseball cap pulled down low, down to my eyes, hoodie over that, front row, middle seat of a matinee, non-weekend show. No one sitting anywhere near me. Vaccine already in my arm. I, I know I'm extreme on this, Rebecca, but <laughs> any word on how other people are feeling? Yeah, you sound fun. Um, <laughs> the, well, you are not alone. But the, the research suggests that people will be more comfortable going once the vaccine is broadly available. National Research Group uh, did a survey in January said 82% of respondents say they'd be comfortable going to a theater once the vaccine is out there. All right, that's Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor uh, for Film at The Hollywood Reporter. You can read her tweets at that Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, so last week, President Biden tackled immigration, and now this week, he laid out his plans, some big plans for the environment and climate change. Find out what they are when Take Two continues. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. Throughout his campaign, President Biden made clear that the environment and combating climate change would be a top priority. And today, he took his first step to make good on that promise by signing a series of executive orders. Here's a president today at the signing ceremony. It's about jobs, good-paying union jobs. It's about workers building our economy back better than before. It's a whole-of-government approach put climate change at the center of our domestic, national security, and foreign policy. 
Yeah, the president's executive orders cover a lot of ground, from a moratorium on new oil and gas leases and a new task force to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to a conservation plan to protect almost a third of federal lands by 2030. So what does all of this mean for us here in California? With us to discuss this is California Environmental Protection Agency Secretary Jared Blumenfeld and California Natural Resources Agency Secretary Wade Crowfoot. Uh, Secretary Blumenfeld, uh, let's start with you and the climate change aspects of the president's executive orders. What exactly did the president sign today? How significant are these moves and and which orders will be more relevant for you uh, as California's EPA? So hey, thanks for focusing on the story. And it, it really is kind of a, a huge sea change from the last four years where we had uh, an administration that wasn't focusing on science or climate change or action in this area. So yeah, it's a big day. Uh, day one, actually, the president came out and rejoined the international agreement on climate called the Paris Agreement. And today he said that he's going to move forward in April 22nd, Earth Day, and bring leaders from around the world and set a new national standard for the United States. He, as you mentioned at the top, is creating a climate core, actually modeled after California's own climate action core to mobilize young people and get them energized and working to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And really the the big focus is, as you talked about, was a moratorium on oil and gas uh, leasing on public lands. He's also really focused on environmental justice, thinking about how we bring equity into into everything that we're doing. Um, One of the ways he's doing that is also modeled on on something that came came out of Sacramento, which is he's saying we want to get 40% at the federal level of all the the funding on climate change to go to disadvantaged communities. Um, Keeps going. He wants to end fossil fuel subsidies. He wants to help uh, in that 30 by 30 biodiversity goal move forward with climate smart agriculture. He wants to move forward um, really importantly on procurement, which is something that state government in California has also led on to make sure that the federal government is only purchasing clean energy and electric vehicles. And as you said, he wants to do this all across all agencies, as opposed to just EPA or Interior or Department of Energy. He's saying we need agriculture and transportation and the State Department and everyone moving in the same direction. So, so it sounds like it lines up with California. Pretty, it lines up with California pretty well, at least right off the top. I mean, yeah, California has the benefit of starting with Schwarzenegger and Brown and now Governor Newsom, like generation upon governor after governor saying this is a big deal. So we've we've got a lot of the building blocks, which I think you heard in his clip, he's saying this is about how we rebuild our economy. This is really how California's grown its economy. We've now got more than 500,000 folks in the just the clean energy sector alone. Yeah. So we've been able to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and build our economy. And I think, yeah, this aligns really well with the stuff that Wade and I have been working on with so many folks across and, and really led by Governor Newsom. So, Secretary uh, Wade Crowfoot, uh, tell us about the natural resource aspect of this. Uh, what might have the biggest impact here in California? Well, thanks so much, A. I mean, we spent four years you know, battling the Trump administration and working to defend natural resources uh, in California. Uh, any number of sort of legal uh, disputes uh, to protect our natural resources. And now we find ourselves in the situation with a president that's actually setting uh, similar goals uh, to protect our lands, conserve our lands that we've established in California. Specifically, President Biden today called to conserve 30% of our country by 2030. 
Uh, and uh, Governor Newsom had actually established that 30 by 30 goal uh, earlier last fall. And the notion is, uh, how can we take uh, better care of our lands, both our natural areas and our working lands, like our farms and ranch lands and forests? Um, by taking better care of our lands, not only will we help the environment and biodiversity, but we'll actually use those lands to tackle the climate crisis by maximizing the amount of carbon that we can remove from the atmosphere um, that trees and soil absorb and protecting people and, uh, and our natural places from climate impacts like wildfire. So to have the partnership of the president and the federal government supporting all this work in California uh, to protect nature and the natural environment is a huge deal. So speaking on that, uh, Secretary Crowfoot, uh, Biden did uh, start uh, some of his uh, talk today, starting with California. Last year, wildfires burned more than 5,000 acres in the West, as no one knows better than the vice president, former senator from California, an area roughly the size of the entire state of New Jersey. So on that, Secretary Crowfoot, how is California planning to work uh, with the new administration? That's a great question. So we realize that there's no way we're going to respond our way out of the wildfire crisis. Uh, climate change is creating summer and winter, increased warming and changing conditions in our forests. So there's a lot we have to do. Now, the good news is that, that the state uh, and state agencies are stepping up to do the, the scale of work that needs to be done. Things like protective fuel breaks around communities, supporting home hardening, and doing this landscape level uh, forest management. The challenge has been that the federal funding just hasn't been there. President Trump talked a good game about uh, forest management, but really his agencies weren't funded to get the work done. So we're looking forward to working with the Biden administration to actually fund the federal agencies that control about 57% of our forests in California. Now, during his press conference, uh, President Biden also made it clear that he's thinking about who is most affected by climate change. Let's listen to that. With this executive order, environmental justice will be at the center of all we do addressing the disproportionate health and environmental and economic impacts on communities of color. Secretary Blumenfeld, uh, um, can you tell us about the specifics here? What what plans is the president referring to and, and what will it look like here on the ground? Yeah, so environmental justice really is a form of systemic racism whereby communities of color and low-income communities bear the disproportionate burden of environmental pollution. So you can look at a hazardous waste facility or a power plant or a sewage treatment plant, and more likely than not across the United States and in California, that's going to be next to a community of color. And so you saw this big movement, uh, big sunrise movement and others of youth and and folks across the country saying enough is enough. We can't we can't solve the climate crisis if we don't bring equity right to the table to begin with. And so it's really heartening to see Biden and the entire team taking this to heart. Um, it really means looking at how communities are impacted and prioritizing not only stopping the negative things, but also saying those same communities of color often have less parks, less recreational activities, less good schools. Like how do we really lift up communities that have been subjected to everything from government policies like redlining all the way to siting of, of negative environmental facilities. And so he's saying we need to make sure 40% of all federal funds in this area are going to those communities in California, 
our cap and trade proceeds, uh, the greenhouse gas revenue is about 60% uh, over the last years, uh, billions of dollars have gone to those communities. We also have a model here of, of being able to identify those cumulative burdens. So if, if you've got trucks going past your home, but you're also next to a metal plater, how do you quantify that? And so we've been in a lot of dialogue A with the, with the incoming administration around this tool that we have called Cal EnviroScreen that helps rank communities so that we can prioritize things like enforcement, which was one of the things in the executive order, but make, really making sure that we're helping those communities, bringing them the prosper, prosperous jobs and, and a just transition. They're communities that are suffering who are also in the oil and gas production right now. And I think part of what Biden's looking at is how we transform those communities towards cleaner uh, future. And electric vehicles is another great example. We lead the state, we lead the nation in California in electric vehicle production. And, and we want to make sure that those communities that have been traditionally left behind are not left behind in the future. And, and that's exactly what Biden was talking about today. We're speaking with Jared Blumenfeld, uh, California Environmental Protection Agency Secretary and also Wade Crowfoot, uh, California Natural Resources Agency Secretary. Uh, just last week on the show, I uh, talked about uh, the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan here in California and the tension between uh, renewable energy advocates and also conservationists. Uh, Secretary Crowfoot, is, is there a trade-off we need to think about between conserving land versus using it to produce clean energy? We can do both, A, and it just requires uh, smart planning. So the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan is a really good example of getting the right agencies and different groups together to really understand in California's desert, where are the most important places to conserve the environment and protect you know, plants and animals, where solar or wind, for example, wouldn't be appropriate? And then where are those opportunities to build clean energy? Uh, in the desert. So from my perspective, we have 100 million acres in California. That's more than enough land to generate the clean energy we need to uh, build to achieve 100% renewable energy. But we have to be smart about it, and we have to protect those areas that are most sensitive. So it, you, you mentioned it can be done. Both can You could serve both at the same time, because it seems like in sometimes that uh, the tension is so great that you almost have to give up a lot of one to satisfy the other. Yeah, I don't think that's the case. I mean, we in California, we have to do a lot of things, right? We have to conserve our environment, which we're doing. We have to build more renewable energy. Frankly, we need to build more housing, too, to address the affordability crisis. We're a very large state physically. And if we plan right and identify the right land for the right uses, we actually can generate the 100% renewables, build the housing we need to, and uh, protect that sensitive environment that we care about. Now, looking ahead, it feels like uh, this has been a first step early in the president's administration for tackling these uh, these massive environmental issues. So question for both of you, what other policies and changes are you looking forward to? And what challenges do you anticipate as we look forward to the next four years? Let's start with you, uh, Secretary Blumenfeld. So, yeah, a, a big challenge and opportunity that we have is California has always led on the clean cars front. Uh, back, you know, 50 years ago, we were given authority under the Clean Air Act to set stricter than federal standards when it comes to tailpipe emissions from vehicles. We had a pretty difficult acrimonious relationship with the Trump administration and actually with a number of car manufacturers. So I think we have a big opportunity to move forward um, and the governor's very bullish on how we move forward to 
to set some national standards based on where California is going and his executive order on getting to 100% sales of only zero emission vehicles by 2035. As, as you pointed out, a, there's some obstacles along the way. Uh, half of those car manufacturers are still suing California, like Toyota. Um, be good for those guys mm -hmm. to drop their lawsuits before we can move forward. And then in kind of the intersection of what you were just discussing with Wade, there's some pretty big opportunities uh, on things like offshore wind to really think about in a, in a strong collaborative way how we work with the federal government to move these issues forward. So um, I'm bullish. I think Wade and I are really excited to, to no longer be fighting a really strong headwind, but suddenly have tailwinds behind us where we have partners in D.C. that want to work with us. And Secretary Crowfoot, on that uh, point exactly, do, do you almost feel like you, you know you have at least four years where you have an administration that you can probably work with. Do you feel a sense of urgency that California's goals need to be done by then in case something changes? Well, absolutely. I mean, we feel urgency because we are on borrowed time with climate change, and we all know that in California. I think we're pretty blown away that the Biden-Harris administration has moved so quickly and so comprehensively uh, to right the ship on climate action. So that is hugely encouraging. Something we haven't talked about is just the folks that they've put in to these leadership roles across the agencies and departments are proven leaders uh, that can actually get this work done. So I think there's a there's a great sense of optimism, but also, as you say, a real sense of urgency, just given uh, the crisis we face. That's uh, Wade Crowfoot, California Natural Resources Agency Secretary, and also Jared Blumenfeld, California Environmental Protection Agency Secretary. Uh, Mr. Crowfoot, Mr. Blumenfeld, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Every week, we tell you about a podcast that's worth listening to. There are so many. I mean, just go to LAS Studios. Uh, you'll find a bunch there. But we also have one if you're a big fan of the singer Selena. I know you've seen the movie. You may have seen the TV show. But this is a podcast, and it's worth listening to. Find out all about it when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. In Limerick Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. And you can hear Take Two's podcast on Apple Podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. The legacy of Tejano star Selena Quintanilla continues to live on through her music. Also the 1997 film, also a recent Netflix show, and now a brand new podcast series that explores the life of the cultural icon. It's called Anything for Selena, and it's hosted by WBUR senior editor Maria Garcia. Then I discovered her. Red lips, brown skin, big hoops. She was magnetic no matter what side of the border she was on. Selena! 
Nick Quaz, the host of the LA Studios show, Servant of Pod, and uh, he spoke with Maria Garcia about the podcast. Nick, uh, all right, the series, uh, Anything for Selena, is a collaboration between WBUR and Futuro Studios. And LA Studios uh, just recently launched a collaboration with Futuro Studios. It's a podcast called Norco 80. So before we get into the podcast, Anything for Selena, and by the way, Nick, I have an issue with the title. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Fill us in on uh, Futuro Studios. Yeah, so uh, Futuro Studios is a sort of recently established creative division of a company called Futuro Media Group, which I think for public radio listeners, they probably best know them for being the home of Latino USA, which is the long-running radio show hosted by Maria Hinojosa. It's a production shingle, basically, as a way for the company to start like building interesting podcast projects around internal talent and ideas. Now, so tell us about the podcast, Anything for Selena. So the way I've taken to describe anything for Selena is that it's it's part memoir, part documentary. So on the documentary side, it's a the overarching enterprise is to, you know, revisit, unpack, understand like the legacy of Selena, trying to really grapple with the ways in which her sort of celebrity in the 80s and 90s continues to influence many of the contours of today's pop culture and today's sort of just a culture at large in the way that Mexican-Americans see themselves in society, you know, what she means as a sort of totemic figure in a a couple of ways. But what sets it apart, I think, is the sort of memoristic aspect of the show. It's hosted, written, led by Murray Garcia, who typically works as a senior editor of arts and culture at WBUR. Uh, And for Garcia, Selena was like a formative icon who helped shape her own identity. She's Mexican-American. She grew up in El Paso. And so... That perspective of having this person like very sort of present in her life really grounds the choices that she makes in the cultural analysis aspects of the show. Yeah, she sounds like a perfect person to host this. Uh, West Texas, uh, Mexican-American. I mean, that is that is Selena to a T. So why did uh, Maria Garcia decide to tell this version of Selena's story? Yeah, so this is what uh, Maria told me in our in our conversation. I don't think her legacy has been done justice. Like, there's a lot of Selena stuff out there. There's a Mm. lot of Selena content. But there's nothing that really unpacks how she changed culture, what she's responsible for, the the cultural shifts that she's responsible for. And so this has the cultural analysis of, of that. But it's also just like, it's also a love letter yeah, so balancing between those two poles. Yeah, so what's the structure of the series and, and who does uh, Maria talk to? It swivels back and forth between, on the one hand, digging into Selena's biography and doing it sort of really efficiently and quickly, trying to understand her and her world with greater substance. Part of this includes her actually, uh, Garcia actually going down to Corpus Christi before the pandemic and talking to a bunch of uh, figures in her life who, who are you know still around now, including her father, which I'm made to understand through the show, is a looming figure o- over her life that also has been like flattened in many versions of Selena's story, including the movies. And the other thing that the series does is that a couple of episodes kind of picks and chooses different aspects of Selena's legacy to unpack. So, for example, in the third episode, Garcia sort of takes up Selena's murder in 1995 and, and how that kicked off what she kind of felt was a forgotten culture war these days, one that comes out of a tension between the way white America views Mexican-Americans and how Selena's death in 1995 kind of really sort of provoked a ton of, of tension and like self-understanding and, and sort of negotiation between the two sides there. 
Yeah, there is a great scene in the film, Selena, where Abraham, uh, Selena's father, is talking to Selena in, in a car. And, and he's talking about how difficult it is to be Mexican-American because for the Mexicans, you're not Mexican enough. And for the Americans, you're not American enough. So they're, they're straddling this, this cultural line in an area where they don't seem to fit in either way. So I think, I think that, that's always been an overarching theme uh, for, for Selena in, in any version of the stories that are told about her. We're talking to Nick Kwa, host of Servant of Pod and founder of the Hot Pod Newsletter. Now, Selena Quintanilla, very much a, a cultural icon whose legacy lives on to this day. Did Maria talk about what it is about Selena's story that resonates with so many Mexican-Americans and Latino-Americans? Yeah, it's it's precisely what you said there is sort of how she sort of embodies or, you know, both the aspect of how it's difficult for Mexican-Americans to occupy this sort of in-between space, neither one nor the other necessarily, but also how sort of she's she was able to transcend that as an icon. And, and this is sort of what Maria told me. At such a formidable age, when I was sort of like discovering my identity, I discovered Selena. And it was the very first time that I saw somebody who resembled my community, who resembled my family, who resembled those of us who were in the middle. Mm. That I saw somebody like that ascend in American society and ascend in a way that was still connected to her roots, ascend yeah. without compromise. Yeah, ascend without compromise mm. is like the phrase that really sticks with me from this conversation. Like, I'm not I'm not American, I, like I immigrated here and I feel like compromises are made all the time sure, by yeah, identity. Yeah. So like, so there are ways in which like even, so Selena's story transcends and how it sort of, it feels like this, this larger kind of feeling about the broader immigration experience. Now, okay, now to the scene in the film about <laughs> Selena. Okay. I, I, am, I am excited to hear about this. I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> yeah, okay, so the film came out in 1997. It was a star-making vehicle for Jennifer Lopez. The line, anything for Selena, that's where it shows up. Now, the title of the podcast is called Anything for Selena, but anyone that's seen the film understands that the reason why that line stood out, the reason why people remember it, people recite it to this day, well, here, don't just take my word for it. Let's hear the clip because it's right after two guys try to help Selena's uh, stuck tour bus uh, with their lowrider and their bumper falls off in the process. What can we do? Do you need Somebody, a new one? Are you kidding me, man? This bumper, this, this bumper is going to go on the wall of my garage, carnal. I'm going to put a little sign under it. It's going to say, this bumper was pulled off by the bus of Selena's. <laughs> I mean, anything for Selena's. So there you go, Nick. You hear that the two guys in the movie put an S at the end of Selena's name. Anything for Selena's. That's why people recite it to this day that, that understand the movie. It's just kind of the way some people talk in this world. So I was so disappointed, Nick, when, when, when I saw the name of the podcast and the S wasn't attached to it. You know, it, it, it is in the culture. It feels like a reference. And maybe it's, it's sort of one of those things where it's like, well, you know, if there's an S here, there's going to be some questions for folks who didn't see the movie or whatever. People who are a little young. So, you know, maybe it's like a, that's, that's a form of editing right there. All right, that's Nick Kwa. He's the host of the LA Studios podcast, Servant of Pod. New episodes are out every single Wednesday, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts. Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to continue to harp on anything for Salinas. After our conversation, Nick reached out to host Maria Garcia, uh, asking about the title. Garcia told Nick that the name is, in fact, a reference to that 1997 movie scene, saying it's uh, sort of a if-you-know-you-know you know type of thing. Now, as far as uh, dropping the S, 
Garcia told Nick that's uh, because it was important for me to honor her actual name for Selena to be in the title, and that outweighed the novelty of Salinas. I don't have to like it. I don't have to like it, but I can accept it. Right, you can find us on uh, social media on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. Good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at two. Talk to you then.